You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Welcome back, everyone, to the return of Eye on the Prize. We've had a little bit of a hiatus due to just, you know, not a whole lot happening over the last week. <laughs> but um... Yeah, I was going to say, like, we were looking at, like, news, and I don't think there's anything significant at all. Well, I mean, this is that point. We we came to the point where we got the Oscar nominations, and now it's just waiting for the winners. So, <laughs> you know, there's not a whole lot to say between then and now. But we happen to have a few more updates. Uh, some big stuff happened. And we decided to do some more retrospective stuff, because... There's always so much to dig up from Oscar history. But, so, before we start off, I am Justin Zarian, your host as usual. And to my left on the Skype call here, we got Shaquille Lambert. How you doing? I'm good, man. How about you? How's everybody else doing? Hi, hello. Yeah, yeah, no, doing great. And then to the right, after so long, we got JC DeLeon back on the podcast. How are you doing? Doing all right. Hello, hello. Excellent. Yeah. No, it's, man, it feels like so long. I looked at um, the last time we called with you on JC, and I'm like, Okay, let's see here. November? Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah. No, and I, I didn't want to interfere too much with your work schedule, but I just want to make sure that we all had days that worked best for us. So, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, that, that whatever weird flu going around that is immune to any and all flu shot, uh, it got me. It got me bad. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I've been seeing a lot of people I know. Even my dad, he got sick a couple weeks ago with that. So, Man, <laughs> just like... Okay, hold on. I've been... I think... There's been some kind of super flu that's been going on with y'all in the U.S. Because I read some shit yesterday in, like, the New York Post that, like, some dude got the flu and ended up having to, like, get his feet removed and shit. I saw the same thing. Wait, I was like, what kind man. of mutated-ass, like, T-virus shit y'all got over there? I'm gonna stay up in yeah. Canada land. It's the diabetes yeah. flu, seriously. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not one to normally take a flu shot. Uh, and I read that story. I was like, maybe I should take a flu shot. And then somebody was like, yeah, but this strain this year is immune to the flu shot, so it wouldn't have mattered anyway. So we're all fucked anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we just caution everybody to stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, I guess just don't go outside. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, so, on the agenda today, I mean, the usual, going through, uh, we're going to talk a bit about the news stories. We had a few Guild Awards. Um, and then we're going to do a retrospective on the music this uh, for the Oscar nominations. So, uh, the Oscar-nominated scores and the songs. And then we're going to look at screenplays, because I've really been enjoying this retrospective of the last 10 years. And, JC, we haven't had you on for a lot of these things yet. So I'm, I may even ask you, like, just if you had any preferences on some of the other categories. But I do want to hear what you think about the original and adapted screenplays. This will be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but first of all, uh, JC, since we haven't talked to you for so long, what you been up to this week? Uh, not a lot. Um, just been... Just kind of working my usual day job, and then uh, there haven't been a ton of movies that I've been out to. Uh, I've kind of, um, I've, I'm, I'm somebody who who appreciates kind of the big dumb action movie, and so like I saw um, the the thing that O'Shea Jackson Jr. and uh, Den of Thieves, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, that was like that was like that's in a lot of ways that's kind of my that's my kind of January stupid and then I've sort of taken it easy because I've just sort of been waiting for Black Panther. Yeah, I think everyone's on that note right now. Just like okay, okay, you got twelve strong, den of thieves, you know, stuff nobody really cares about. Get <laughs> to know? it, hurry yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, no, I, I I hear den of thieves is really dumb fun in some ways. I hear it's dumb, but some some people just straight out. But <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. That's good. So I gotta ask. And I'm not trying to spoil the whole thing, but is O.C. Jackson's accent that bad in the ending sequence? It's an interesting one. It's 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 kind of 
it's you kind of have your your way of 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 what you expect uh, British accents to sound, and if you're a naive American like like so many of us, uh, you probably only think there's one, maybe two different ways an accent could sound. And in actuality, there's like a whole lot of different ways a British accent could sound, and it's like maybe it's authentic. I've certainly never really heard that kind of authentic <laughs> that kind of British accent before. I feel like that's so backhanded. Everything you just said. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know why I just I picture Ice Cube speaking with a British accent when I think O'Shea Jackson like that. So just yeah, <laughs> yo governor, yo governor. Yeah, like you you you'd kind of have expect maybe like sort of attack the block or something, and because but yeah, it's it's sort of kind of in between that and like a very proper. It's yeah, yeah. So I gotta say too, I think O'Shea Jackson from the few things I've seen him in. He's showing off he has some chops, you know, more than Ice Cube ever had, to be fair. So. Yeah, that's the thing, because they only, well, one, they only ever let him do one emotion, and also because he can only really act that one emotion. Yeah, it's just, I'm Ice Cube. I'm I got angry. problems. <laughs> I'm angry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it worked for 21 and 22 Jump Street with that, so. Yeah, because they, like, they, they subverted the trope in a certain way that just worked to its effect. But then you see him in shit like Fist Fight, and it's like, oh, you're just only going to do that. All right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and also, he has to crowbar his song lyrics and titles into everything. But God, uh, I hate the... it so much when he does that. It... That was the worst in, um, what was it, Book of Life? Even then, it's like, today is a good day. I'm just yeah. like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, uh, yeah, hopefully O'Shea Jackson Jr. does some other big stuff. I've seen him cast in a few other big, high-profile movies, so I'm, I'm really excited. But, yeah, uh, it's it's interesting the uh, the sons of of um, not to necessarily call Ice Cube a legend, but like I, I think of Scott Eastwood a lot when I think of the children of act, of famous ooh. actors and uh, <laughs> like it, the the way Hollywood works, like being the, being the child of a famous actor definitely gets your foot in the door. But Hollywood is very much like you're only going to stay in the door if you're actually good. And like Scott Eastwood is kind of slowly getting pushed out. I I feel anyway. I hope so. Uh, God. O'Shea, O'Shea's got some talent. Yeah, I think Pacific Rim Two is his last chance right now. So. <laughs> and even then, he's going to be like the most unremarkable part of it. Calling it now. But saying that too, I mean, uh, Mimi Gummer, uh, Meryl Streep's daughter, is making quite an impact. So, yeah, you know, there must be some. I, I have to agree. Like, if you can show you have some modicum of talent, you'll stick around for sure. Um, but then Shaq, what have you been up to this week? Um, I've been good. I've been doing uh, just like kind of hanging around. I uh, didn't get to see much, but I did get to see two things in particular. Uh, the first one was the Cloverfield Paradox, which uh, oh boy, oh man, that that was a disappointment. Um, it, it, you know, it's funny because I've heard some friends I know, uh, high patients by the way, uh, who really really liked the movie. So it's it it's one of those things where like it could have been so much better than what it actually was because the whole thing is aside from like the brilliant marketing tactic of like announcing the movie or dropping it like like two hours later um the movie in itself is just kind of like a much lesser version of event horizon mm. that, that's yeah. what i've heard from a lot of people yeah i've, I've in, in the movie is kind of forgettable because i guess i kind of forgot i'd seen it when i <laughs> exactly um but uh yeah it, it is it, if it didn't have the ways in which it sort of syncs up with the original Cloverfield, it wouldn't be much of an interesting movie because those moments are kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's 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 yeah, it's like Event Horizon. It's not much more than your your disaster on a spaceship movie. Yeah, there's that, and then also I think uh, the lead actress uh, Gugu Mbatha-Ra, I thought she was great. Like she was acting, and like she was like the, obviously like the most likable character in the film. But everyone else 
was like a really shitty stock character that you could tell. They basically tell their motivations in like the first five minutes that you see them. Like the Russian guy, especially, where he's like, oh, I'm angry all the time and shit. It's like, all right, cool, I guess. Are you going to be that much deeper? No, you're not. Oh, okay, cool, you're by. Yeah, I noticed they had, like, the German guy, the Chinese lady, the Russian guy, the the other black character, you know, yeah, yeah, like, you could just write, you don't even know their names, they're just, that's the character And any cool, like, kind of, like, weird kind of body horror stuff that they incorporate, you think it's like, oh, it's gonna be more of that, and then they're just, it just stops. Yeah, well, I noticed, too, like, look look at the um, the footage that I've seen other people post up. It looks kind of cheap, like, weirdly cheap for a movie that supposedly costs $50 million to buy out. Yeah, it, it kind of does. Yeah. No, and apparently yeah. Paramount learned the lesson because they're like, yeah, Cloverfield 4, we're going to put that in the theaters. Uh, we kind of, we, we made the Cloverfield Paradox as a sacrificial lamb to get Cloverfield 4 out in theaters. Which, at the very least, Cloverfield 4, like uh, Overlord or whatever, it sounds promising, but yeah. it's one of those things that like, you got some damage control to do it. Like, you just kind of, kind of killed what could have been like a brilliant kind of break in the door for like different kind of film. Or, like, in, not just different kind of film, but, like, in terms of just, like, releasing a film would be something so innovative, but I just wish it was associated with a movie that wasn't shit. Yeah, but, well, uh, and also the fact that it seems they're breaking their own logic of the film, because it's like, all right, so at first we had Aliens, you know, that was the clear thing from Cloverfield 1 and then Clo- uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, and now we got, like, demons and weird paranormal stuff going on in Cloverfield Paradox. It doesn't they, seem to mesh well. Yeah, so. the thing is, yeah, they straight up say, like... Uh, the whole thing is like, oh, here's the mystery of why the the giant monster in the first one was there. And it's basically Donald Logue just says it in, like, a two-minute piece of, like, random throwaway news dialogue. They're like, oh, all right, I guess that's it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, we, we opened this portal and we'll be monsters and demons and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was like, all right, that, that's an easy, convenient way to just write it out. Yeah, just anything you can think of will come out from the portal because, so. Yeah. But, um, uh, so anyway, what was, what was the, the other, the other movie I want to talk about real quick was uh, Victor Crowley, a.k.a. Hatchet Ooh, 4. Nice. Um, I enjoy, I'll say before, when I preface this, that I actually do enjoy quite a bit the Hatchet movies. Like, they're nothing, like, they're basically just schlocky horror films just made with a modern day cast and budget. And at the very least, it's worth watching for like the practical gore effects. Cause they're still pretty fun and impressive. That being said, this movie sucks. <laughs> Cause <laughs> the whole thing is that they want to focus more on the humor. Where... And the thing is with the humor is that the humor in hatchet series was never really anything like highbrow or whatever. It was always fairly like B movie kind of shit. But this, this is like D grade level obnoxious, and wow. normally there'd be at least like one character that can kind of go like, "Oh, you know what? I kind of sympathize with that character to an extent," but no, everyone here is just an annoying, vapid piece of shit. Because the way <laughs> they do it is that the the main like male survivor from Hatchet Three, he went on like a book tour of like, "Oh, how I survived this," and he goes on a flight. And with a bunch of other people, because I think uh, his assistant booked him for, like, this big show or whatever. And he crash lands in the exact swamp where Victor Crowley happens to be. And someone actually resurrects him through, like, a fucking YouTube video of Tony Todd citing, like, the incantation <laughs> to bring him back. Wait, and wait, wait, wait. Tony Todd is in this? He was in the second one. Okay. 
Yeah, he's he's like a voodoo shop owner. Or something yeah, like he that. he was great yeah. in the second one. So is Tony Todd the uh, overlord of like? Is he the overlord of all the like like Final Fantasy Destination? Victor Crowley. He's just he's connecting all these franchises. <laughs> Practically, but um, <laughs> the thing is, is with Hatch, with the, at least with Victor Crowley, most of the movie takes place on the crashed plane because they're like, oh no, we need to stay here. And while there's still some cool gore effects, like there's one in particular that is just gross as hell that happens to uh what's her name um i remember this actress i saw her before in a horror movie she's like uh oh felissa rose who's in a sleepaway camp like she plays the assistant and something super fucked up happens to her through victor crowley and that's one of those ones those brief moments where it's like the hatchet of old where it's like it's gross but it's kind of funny at the same time but for the most part it's just these douchebags in this plane just kind of hiding out for Victor Crowley. And it's hmm. just that none of it's really funny, but then it just kind of ends. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> but yeah, it's, 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 it's really disappointing considering, uh, how hard Adam Greed was like, listen, this is the big return of Victor Crowley guys. Like, listen, this is a, a labor of love, but it feels so much cheaper than the rest of them. And it feels like this is so completely and totally utterly pointless. That's a shame. I mean, and I, I hate that trend in horror movies where it's like, yeah, we make every character a douchebag so they don't feel bad when they die. It's like, but that's why we no, like just, the old slasher movies, you know? There's there's a difference between making them unlikable to the point where you just kind of enjoy them dying and, and unlikable to the point where you just want to turn the movie off. And it breaks that so quickly. Especially with, uh, what's his name? There's a certain character, if I could find the actor's name real quick. Um, oh, is it that sheriff-looking dude that was in the trailers? Or Yeah, Dave Sheridan, who oh, okay. uh, who plays, like, this quirky actor. Because also, I forgot to mention that there's a bunch of teens who are trying to make a horror movie about Victor Crowley. And they <laughs> shoot it in the fucking swamp, so that's why they're also caught in the mix. And they sure, hired uh, yeah, d- uh, <laughs> fucking Dave Sheridan as Dylan, who's, like, a weird, quirky, eccentric actor. And he is maybe the most annoying out of all of them. And he's there for most of the movie, and you're just like, just shut up. God, I hate those characters like that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, oh, it's, well. I mean, like, if you're gonna, if you want to see it for the gore, just wait until, like, there's those montages on YouTube. And, yeah, nothing else. That's, that's all you really need to see. Well, so, Jigsaw, Victor Crowley, what are the reboots that are gonna fail this year, I wonder? Man, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I haven't been watching a whole lot because, uh, for the people who haven't heard Big Announcement, I got accepted into a PhD program, so... Congratulations, man. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, no, I'm super excited. Uh, so I haven't been officially confirmed for it yet because I'm still waiting to hear back from a few people, including the University of Austin. Please get back to me. I want to hear from you guys. But, um, yeah, that's really exciting. And then I just sent in my application to get my thesis experiment done because... All the groundwork's done. I wrote the literature, the methodology, and that such. And so now I'm getting the approval to do my first initial round of surveys to get the experiment ready. So, uh, yeah, I'm waiting to hear back from them. They should get back to me Monday or Tuesday. So I'm really, really excited for that. Um, yeah, and then aside from that, just been, you know, going around looking up TV shows and such. Uh, for my experiment, I watched an episode of Room 104. Uh, you heard about that show from the Duplass Brothers? No. Yeah, so it's... It's interesting. It's a um, it's an anthology series where it's about different people who have lived in this hotel room over the years. 
So, you know, you'll focus on entirely different groups of people, one of which involved two Mormon missionaries. And so I use that for my study because that's what my, my whole thing is about, is watching fictional characters who are Latter-day Saints. Um, and it was interesting. Like, I give it an A for the execution because it's acted and made really well for such a small budget show. There's just stuff that irks me by the fact that clearly nobody knows what Latter-day Saints are. <laughs> you know, it's like they, they claim they did their research like, oh, yeah, we talked to all our friends who are Mormons. We've looked at all this research. We know what to do. And it's like, but then it's just a story about how, oh, these Mormons become enlightened by sinning and doing the wrong stuff. So therefore, they're better people because they drank beer and watched porn. You know, I'm just like, OK, you know, it's, it's not like those narratives don't exist. It's just that's the only narratives we get anymore. So no, that's been that. Um and then I've been browsing through YouTube videos. I got into a huge kick with Homestar Runner videos this last week. And <laughs> I, I love those videos. They're so great. Even some of the recent ones were actually pretty good. Where it's like, okay, the last one was kind of an inside joke I didn't get. But there was one that came out the year before that that was a nice little like throwback to old Homestar. But the funniest thing I found out about that, I looked up the people who were responsible for making the show. Like, you know, it's the, the brothers Chap who are the main guys behind it. Um, but then there's the guy whose name is Craig Zobel. And if you're familiar with that name, for a guy who started this very innocent cartoon series, he's also a director on such things like Compliance, uh, Z for Zachariah, The Leftovers, American Gods. I'm like, this guy was the creator of Homestar Runner? (laughs) 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 That was just such a huge disconnect for me. But hey, to be fair, he helped create something that was very endearing and still, you know, still charming after 20 years. (laughs) But uh, yeah, that's been the most of my viewing. Uh, And I think I mentioned I saw the post here, right? Uh, I believe you did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, so, just quick summation, of, just in case, uh, good, not great. You know, it was one of those ones where it's like, it's very well executed, it's solid Spielberg, but nothing that's essential to his filmography at all, so. How, how'd you like that Avengers-style, uh, final, uh, final scene? <laughs> the, way it, the way it leads up to the, uh, all the President's men. Yeah, that was, uh, that was interesting. <laughs> I know, I expected, like, Sam Jackson to come. Like, yeah, if he had played the black security guard who found the people in the Watergate, that would have been the most perfect, like, <laughs> stinger. I, I just, that kind of, that's the weakest part of the movie, I felt, was the actual, like, epilogue sequences. Because there was that, and then the ocean of women who are surrounding Meryl Streep as she walks out from the courthouse. Where I'm like, yeah. I get it, movie. You really want me to feel sympathetic for this character. It's just, and that's fine. She's a significant person in terms of news, but it felt very forced. And that's what bugged me about it. Because I think uh, you mentioned about it during the uh, Highly Suspect Reviews, right, JC? Or... Uh, uh, somebody else brought up that specific point, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I remember how, how, Yeah, how it felt unearned and how there's no way at that moment in time a moment like that would have like would have happened. Like it, it, I can see how it gets put in a movie now in 2018 or 2017 when it was shot. Uh, but, yeah, it, that didn't happen at the time. No, no. It, it, that, <laughs> and that just felt like a very movie thing going into it. But, uh, yeah, then, other than that, just been doing kind of the usual stuff. So, since my week has been terribly uneventful, other than that... Oh, actually, um, you know what? One last thing. Uh, I've been doing a bunch of new classes for my uh, last semester here, and one of the ones I've been doing is voice acting. So, <laughs> that's been a lot of fun. It's, it's really interesting to try and, like, test out vocal range and reading different styles of dialogue and that stuff. It's, it's really, really cool. Like, if you ever want to, like, get better at reading podcast stuff or doing voice work or whatever, just... You know, find some copies on the internet or write up your own scripts and just practice. It, it can really do a lot of good for, you know, vocal technique, I think. Really, really fun. Uh, so, yeah, on that, that note, cool. 
Oh, yeah, thank you. Uh, on that note, let's get to the news. So, not a whole lot that's been really different. Like, uh, there was the Art Directors Guild winners that happened this last week. And, you know, surprise, surprise, Shape of Water dominated that. So Of course. Yeah, so, okay, so fantasy feature film was Blade Runner. Period feature film was Shape of Water. Contemporary feature film was Logan, funny enough. Uh, awesome. And then uh, animated feature film was Coco. Because, honestly, who would have challenged Coco on that one? No, no one. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, that at least, you know, it, it pretty much just solidifies that the two top contenders for production design are going to be Blade Runner and uh, Shape of Water. Which, it's hard to say, because they're both incredible set design work, you know? Like, uh, but, like, uh, asking you guys, who do you think would be your top contender between those two in the category? I, I think anytime, um, to me, I think it's more of a challenge to to create an entire set, an entire production. And granted, this wasn't necessarily on a large scale, because this kind of all could have been, um, you know, shot in, in a studio or... or a, or, or, or a lot, or something like that. But I, I think it, it's a it's a greater challenge to uh, make a production production set look like the past. Like I think there's a lot involved. That you got to find all the old cars. There's all the old costumes. I think to create something futuristic, it's um, easier isn't necessarily the right word, but it's a different kind of challenge that I don't think um, that that gives you a lot more options. Oh sure. Uh, sure. You're, you're super limited when you want you need to make something look like it was in the past. And when you do that really well, uh, that's slightly more impressive to me. No, I can see that. And, I mean, Shape of Water, yeah, they had to do a lot to get it feeling like the 60s there. And, you know, it's a funny thing. For a film that's a fantasy movie, it feels very authentic in the set work. You know, like, there's nothing too over the top with it. I mean, other than the crazy scientific laboratory setting. (laughs) But, um, uh, uh, Shaq, what about you? Um, Personally, I'd like them to go for Blade Runner. Because one, it's one of those things that I feel like they could give it just on the sense of like, okay, we know we didn't nominate it for anything else or any uh, much else, but we'll give it a nod here because it is really impressive on a visual, like on a visual production uh, scale. And Shape of Water, I feel like it will do- it'll dominate everything else. So it's one of those things like I feel like they might just give it like a uh, you know what we'll we'll give you a uh, we'll give this one a, just a leg up. Yeah, and I think the impressive thing with both of those films is that a lot of them were very practical with their set work. You know, yeah. like even mm-hmm. a Blade Runner was such elaborate set design. It's like, yeah, these sequences are very much like CG and model work, but a lot of the scenes where they're just walking around, that's totally just stuff they did, actual set building, actual walls, actual location shots. It's pretty amazing. Uh, I mean, so that's why it's probably my favorite choice, but if Shape of Water wins, which it seems very likely now that it's probably going to, I won't mind. It's still very, very good work. For both. Yeah, I'm not against. No, not at all. Uh, and then the other one, which I'm pretty sure is going to be an inevitability, and I'm not totally against it, uh, is the Director's Guild Award. Now, this one, come on, was there any surprise? Guillermo del Toro won, so... Yeah. yeah. Like, literally, I mean, we're, and... we're just kind of seeing what it's going to lead to. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, it feels like he already blew his load with like his amazing speeches, you know, like at Golden Globes and that stuff, so <laughs> what else can he say on the Oscars other than... Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of a given now. I think the, if someone wins the Golden Globes, the DGA, and all these other prizes, it's almost an inevitability he's going to win the Oscar. Yeah. I mean, am I wrong with that? Or... No, no, you're completely right with that. Like, watch them do, like, a fucking, just sweep it out of nowhere. They just give it to, like, Paul Thomas Anderson. Be like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
that would shock people immensely. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people, like a lot of people, would be happy, but I feel like a lot more people would be pissed. And I think, like, I mean, I've seen the surprises that happened before, but then again, um, gosh, what was it, the King's Speech, when that one director that year, I think he won the DGA, even though uh, David Fincher won the Golden Globe. So I think DGA is usually a pretty solid precursor for who will win the Oscar. I mean, with the exception, like, say, Ben Affleck for um, uh, Argo. Since yeah, Argo. Yeah, Argo. Yeah, so. Um, but on that note, also, Jordan Peele won for first-time director. So, I mean, again, not terribly surprised. Yeah, thing is, is at least if, if they have those, like, kind of first-time or uh, directorial debut, it's either going to be Jordan Peele or Greta Gerwig, because <laughs> it's only, like... I haven't really got much else to say, just, yeah, just either one of those two, but I think that if it's not... If it's not Del Toro, if for some reason that they don't give it to him, it, it'll probably be Jordan Peele. But sure, yeah, yeah. I, I, as much as that'd be interesting to see, I I don't I feel like the best director at the Oscar level is it's not really something they give out to first timers. It's like it's very it seems like, seems like seems like an unwritten rule where it's like all right, you you got here, you got your nomination. This is big time for your career. It's not your time yet. Yeah, no, I think the last time that happened, or at least one of the biggest times that happened was Sam Mendes, but he had already directed a bunch of stage work before that, so it was like, yeah, it's his first film job, but he was already established presence even when he did American Beauty, so. Yeah. But, because uh, I'm trying to yeah, think, is this, was there any other first-timers who won the Oscar like that, or? I'm trying to think. I can't think of, a, but yeah, but just just looking at the field of, of the five, yeah, it just sort of seems, it's like, well, like, who else but Del Toro? Because you got two first-timers. Nolan for Dunkirk. Dunkirk wasn't necessarily Nolan's best work, and no. then, and then I don't think either, either was Phantom Thread. So yeah, yeah. So I think that's pretty pretty safe. Um, also pretty safe. And the other big one, uh, the big category was the Annie Awards for the, all the animated features. And come on, Coco swept every category it was nominated for. <laughs> Tell me it's not going to win animated feature. Come on. <laughs> oh, listen, man, it's Ferdinand and Boss Baby. That's that's the real game. <laughs> Dude, if Boss Baby wins, I, it, that's that's one of the instances where, like, me being a sports fan and like MVP voting is always real important, and and the, there's always a debate over even who gets the second and third place in, in the voting. Like, I, I think it'd be, yeah, I'd want to see like where Ferdinand ends up on that. <laughs> oh, <Yeah. my> <laughs> oh man, like if they ever released like ballot numbers, like how many people voted for what, you know? Yeah, I... why don't we? Why don't they do that? Well, I think they don't want to eliminate any mystery about it or, you know, like, like reveal any secrets. I, I don't know. There's, there's probably some other complicated reason. Or is it maybe, but... like, a thing of, like, they don't they don't want to show it to be, like, unanimous kind of a thing? And maybe also, like, if it's tied to anyone's names, maybe it will keep their, you know, who voted for what safe kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know what? That's, yeah, it's a bad idea if they actually do it because then they just put so much more politics onto the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, but then it was also interesting because the breadwinner won for best animated independent feature. You know the the category of anyone who was not an American made feature. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's cool. I mean, breadwinner just from looking at the art alone, it's gorgeous. So I I can't wait to see that movie. Um, and then also kind of fun uh, for TV, Rick and Morty won for best uh, general audience uh, television show uh, because the the. Fucking Andy Awards, the people who nominated it, they, they have the, the brain capacity to understand the deep intellectual jokes in Rick and Morty. <laughs> yeah, and the episode that won was the Pickle Rick episode, the most single oh violent movie ever. So. <laughs> Real intellectual stuff there. I mean, to be fair, like, it's a really good episode. It just got memed to the point where it's just 
annoying to think about. <laughs> yeah, but then uh, also I thought was fun, uh, Samurai Jack got a couple of technical awards, like production design, editing, character design work. So, hey, that last season, even though it kind of faltered at the very end for storytelling, it's an impressive piece of artwork all throughout. So Definitely. Oh, yeah. So, with that out of the way, here we are with the look at this year's music nominees. Now, I kind of joked earlier on, it's like, yeah, the reason I did this is because I had so much fun editing the music into that last podcast, so I wanted to do it again. But, I love instrumental scores, I love talking about them, I love listening to them. So, I wanted to go through and just talk a bit about the people who are up for Best Original Score and Best Original Song. So, I sent you guys the list, and here... So, okay, the five that are nominated for Best Score this year are Dunkirk, and that's um, Hans Zimmer. Phantom Thread with Johnny Greenwood. Shape of Water, Alexandre Desplat. Star Wars Last Jedi, John Williams. Three Billboards Outside Edding, Missouri by Carter Burwell. I mean, that's a pretty safe list of, like, heavy hitters and return nominees and that stuff. Which, funny enough, though, Johnny Greenwood had never been nominated before this. You know, he made some... not? No, because he didn't get nominated for There Will Be Blood. Uh, he didn't get which nominated is... for The Mask. So, sorry, that's baffling to me, actually. Yeah, no, because the music in There Will Be Blood is amazing, I think. But uh, I guess it was kind of that stigma of, oh, he's a rock and roll musician. Why would we vote for him, you know? But at the same time, it's like, <laughs> uh, didn't uh, Trent Reznor get nominated for Social Network? Yeah, which, that's kind of a fluke, I think. You know, we're just nominating some guy just like, oh, by the way, the dude from Nine Inch Nails turned out an amazing score. And yeah. they took him seriously, so. <laughs> but, I mean, also, that score was easily the single best score that year, too, so it was yeah. hard to argue with yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I uh, just wanted to go through a little bit on each of the scores and just talk about some of the impressive elements about them. Because I know, um, I don't think, JC, you said you had a chance to really listen to all the scores, right? No. Unfortunately. Okay, but I'm sure you probably remember some of the pieces from the movies you saw of them. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Shaq. So the first one we'll talk about is Dunkirk. So Dunkirk is an interesting score for Nolan, for Nolan and Zimmer because it's very much like a lot of their scores. It's very... How'd you say? It's much more atmospheric than some of their other previous work, where a lot of it's very background noise, very droning, very steady beats and that kind of stuff. Uh, and did you notice too that there was a lot of Inception style beats and tunes yes. in some of the music? Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, like especially um, the big track I was thinking of was Supermarine, where yeah, there's a the lot submarine. of that. Yeah, was it Supermarine or Submarine? Uh, Supermarine. That's what okay. it's called. But um, where there's a lot of uh, Mombasa, the score that was in Inception. 
and it, you know that that kind of like steady like kind of stop. It's still really, really engaging and very tense. It's just the more I listen to it today, I'm like. Intense is, like, the main word that you need to use for this, because, man, this, like, re-listening to it, I was stressed out again, <laughs> like, just as I was the first time I saw it, and especially how they, they make it, uh, I don't know what piece it was, but there's one that incorporated back the, like, that kind of stopwatch kind of ticking in the pace of it, and it just made me all just like, oh, what, this shit's about to go down, <laughs> kind of feeling. Yeah, no, I thought it was... It's pretty good music. I don't think it's anything like revolutionary for Hans Zimmer, but it's it's solid work and it's solid throughout. Uh, JC, did you have any thoughts on the music from Dunkirk? Or uh, well, that comment he made about like the the ticking watch. Um, yeah, I can't think of of a tangible, a sort of non musical element, if you will, um, that he's, he's ever really used to create tension like that. And yeah, I can't remember what scene in the movie that was in, but I I, I do kind of remember that sort of sticking out and. Yeah, creating that sort of tension where, like, obviously, you know, there's something ticking and you know that there's either stuff around the corner or shit's about to go down. And yeah, like, that's that was a really creative use of, of, of that kind of element. Absolutely. It's very, I think urgency is a really big word for this score. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think if I had to rank it from, like, the top, I mean, the five nominated scores here, I'd say it's probably, like, number three. Because while it wasn't, like, new for Hans Zimmer, it's still very, very good. Uh, and I have to give credit to the other artists who worked on it, because it's um, Lauren Balfa, uh, Benjamin Walfish, and Edward Elgar, who are the other composers on the sc- soundtrack. Which, I love that guy's last name, because it sounds like a Power Ranger villain, but Elgar! <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. It, the, the, it, and that's kind of typical for Hans Zimmer, where he'll take a bunch of scores from his protégés and his other assistants and kind of combine them together with his work. Which... It's resulted in some good stuff. Even the uh, the score for Genius, a TV show, that's him and Lauren Balfa as well. So, um, but yeah. So going from there, then we have Phantom Thread by Johnny Greenwood. Uh, I gotta say, this score I think is awesome. Like almost all the way through it's it really shows johnny greenwood can do more than just the weird scores because yeah um the master had a lot of that very atonal weird you know style of music uh so did inherent vice uh, there will be blood was probably the closest he had to a traditional score before that even then he had a lot of that droning you know thunderous dramatic music or those weird compositions this one had a lot of range i think like he managed to show off the piano he made a show off the violin he made a show off with some of his more you know, eccentric style music um, music compositions. Yeah, it's basically and, a, it's a lot more dynamic than his previous scores, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And from what I hear, uh, so JC, did you see Phantom Thread? I did. Yeah. So from what I heard, the music is pretty much nonstop throughout the movie, right? Yeah, and that's that's sort of where um, in, in in I'm sort of the, the the least knowledgeable about scores in 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 a, in a sense like that where. In a movie where the score is really ever present, um, it's either got to be really outstanding to me for me to really notice. Um, but there were certain times when a different music instrument would be brought in that it would sort of kind of bring me back in and focus on the score. And like I really love uh, piano music, 
And so anytime that was brought in, it would sort of make me like sort of repay attention and it would sort of like recenter my focus on the movie. Uh, so moments like that were, were, were really good. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think, um, thinking of piano music, my favorite, uh, track from the soundtrack was the second Phantom Thread theme, uh, Phantom Thread 2, where it's all the piano version of that music. And it's really, really like, it's very melancholy, very thoughtful, very evocative. It just, it, it really caught my attention. Uh, was there any track that really stood out for you, Shaq? Um, personally, I'm gonna be honest that Phantom Thread was one of the uh, scores that, like, I didn't, I actually couldn't listen to that much because a lot of it was fucking geo blocked. Thanks YouTube, but um, <laughs> but the song, the like, at least from the ones that I did hear, I did enjoy quite a bit. There was one in particular had a uh, House of Woodcock. I actually enjoyed a lot. Get over that's his actual last name is Woodcock. Because <laughs> wasn't that the name of that one Billy Bob Thornton movie, uh, Mr. Woodcock? Mr. Woodcock, yeah. who ended up directing I, Tanya. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, the director, the dude who did Mr. Woodcock did I, Tanya. He's the director. That was Greg, Cele- Greg Celespie? Yep. <laughs> wow. Uh, Craig Gillespie. Sorry. Yeah. And my, uh, my... <laughs> Speaking backwards there. Yeah, right? Uh, it's the difference in quality between those two movies is night and day. Wow. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's the same thing with those guys who do Captain America 2 and 3. It's like, wait, they did You, Me, and Dupree? <laughs> <laughs> wow. The... You, know, you never know. Sometimes people just get the right material. Exactly. But yeah. Uh, I think Phantom Thread for me is my second favorite of the nominees. So, I don't know. Any any last thoughts from you two, you two guys on that one? Uh, no, I got, no, I got nothing really on this one. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I totally recommend you guys listen to it on Spotify or YouTube if it's not region locked in your place too. <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry about that, Shag. I didn't realize it was... Yeah, no, no worries, there. dude. That's the thing. Like, I know that... Uh, what was it? Uh... The one that we're going to talk about next, I know you're, that you're going to bring up next. That one also got geoblocked, but I found another page that actually had the full thing, so that one I could listen to more. Uh, okay, that's good. And uh, this next one here is probably, not only is it the predicted winner for Best Original Score, I think it's my favorite of the list, is The Shape of Water by Alexandre Desplat. Mm-hmm. man it's incredible <laughs> it really is and i mean in this plot like he i'm starting to pick up some of his stylings as well the more i listen to his scores because i even picked up hints of fantastic mr fox in a few plot, uh, parts in this score you know like some of the whistle tunes and some of the beats but yeah. it's he still manages to create such memorable themes and motifs and bits of music like just just the main theme alone the opening score Oh, I, fe- your attention I fell in love the moment I heard that because it, it it had that element of sweetness and then just like that that small hint of weird with that like I don't really know what to call it like that kind of whiny kind of like yeah. it reminded me of like old school sci-fi of like something you'd see in like the 50s and it just kind of, it, it was something that like it it hit me personally in the sense of like oh this is I'm in love with this already mm-hmm. 
they had a lot yeah. of bits of like Amelie and French scores that I've heard in the past. But uh, yeah, JC, what are you gonna say? Yeah, I was gonna say this. This this one was aided in in that um, the Draft House would play the trailer all the time for like months before it came out, and so those little bits and pieces of the score were kind of ingrained in my brain before I even saw it. But they were such beautiful pieces. I would I would look forward to them in the movie and was was happy that they were there. And so yeah, sort of and. The ever-present nature of it in this movie, uh, I, I thought was great, and I, I thought the way in which the music sort of matched the tone. Like anytime the movie, the movie was trying to be funny, I thought it, it it the music synced up to that really well, and I think it did tension really well. Um, yeah, it's, I, I would agree. It's probably my favorite, also. Yeah, absolutely. It's also, want to throw a quick shout out to Eliza's theme. Which might be like, aside from the main, the movie's main theme, it might be my favorite piece of the movie because it just, ah, uh, like it, it, it's one of those pieces that makes that fills your heart with like, merry, like wonder and merriment, which is terms I don't usually use, but it's one of those ones <laughs> that like when you're walking around and your imagination is just kind of racing and you're just kind of just thinking about just kind of just happiness. <laughs> No, it had a very storybook feel to this whole score. Like, for as dark a movie as it is, it's almost very fanciful and fantasy. It's really, really charming. Yeah, I I can't say enough about how awesome this score is. Like, people go listen to it. Like, I'll have the, the tracks, you know, before this that you'll hear. But it's totally worth listening to the entire soundtrack, I think. And even um, some of the recompositions they did of, like, um, You'll Never Know and some of the other tunes they played in this, they're really, really good. You'll never know just how much I miss you You'll never know just how much I care Yeah, absolutely. Just go listen to it, people. Like, if anything, actually, no, don't pause the show. Wait till you're done. When your show is done, <laughs> then you go to the soundtrack. Good man. <laughs> uh, well, we're going from the very best to what I got to say is probably my least favorite. Not because it's bad, but when you think of John Williams, you think of like great classic scores from the past. You know, the original Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Schindler's List. And the score for Last Jedi, it's, it's just very safe, I feel. Yeah, no, it's good, but it's not memorable. No, and I yeah. think I, I mentioned this when I talked to you and Ian about that, you know, aside from our bickering about who was right or who was wrong about how good <laughs> it was. But, Wait, um, actually, pause. Before we continue, JC, where do you fall on this again? With The Last Jedi? Yeah. Uh, I liked it. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a Star Wars super fan. I like all the movies. I definitely appreciate them. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed The Last Jedi. Okay. I thought it was all really right. great. All right, cool. We're on the right side. <laughs> okay, so apparently I'm the one guy on the hill who's uh, who's right about it not being all that great. But anyway, <laughs> look, and I get it. I I I get that everyone has a different opinion on it. But even then, 
when I think of the score here, I'm just like, it's not even so much that it's terrible. It's just when you think of all the moments that are like the big moments in the film, they're all themes that we've heard in previous Star Wars movies. You know, the binary sunset, the, uh, you know, the traditional themes and the motifs and that stuff. It felt like it's a lot of what we've heard in the past. Yeah, there were a lot of moments that sort of seemed obvious. Like anytime, it, it, it seems like he's trying to be clever anytime he throws a hint of the Vader theme in there. And it's like, I get it. That's where it belongs. Like, well, and you notice too, there was that one uh, piece they didn't include from the uh, the crate battle. You know why they didn't include it? Because it's the exact same freaking score from Return of the Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> that bit when they're flying the Millennium Falcon. It's like, yeah, guess what? It's not original music. You just stole that from the previous movie. <laughs> going to be honest like like there hasn't like as much as i still love the star wars scores don't get me wrong but there hasn't been like a theme that i've just like fallen in love with at least since like duel of the fates so like since yeah back like episode one that was like the last major piece of just like star wars score that i was like i need this like i need this and i love this but it's not to say that it's bad it's just that's the last memorable one Right, yeah, because like I will say at this point we're eight eight movies in nine if you want to include the 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 one offs that and even with Han Solo coming up like at this point I don't I don't think anyone is in it for the scores and so yeah but that's what yeah, made the, the original so much you know so great what are those what are those scores oh yeah yeah I I agree it was just, I, you know a movie eight um I don't think that's necessarily what anyone's looking for I think people will appreciate it the, those moments but and and that's sort of something I I don't necessarily think fans want messed with too much either i think i think they really love the scores and so they want they sort of want what they remember yeah i mean and even seven i'll say like it did have a lot of recycled bits but i felt like it had a lot more new themes they tried because it felt like they were more inspired to do new things like say um the theme for the resistance you know where they're trying to ape the um which one is it the mars score from this from the season soundtrack yeah, the the one that John Williams always said he's inspired to you know to do scores for in Star oh, Wars. Shit, I, I don't know, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the Resistance theme, the First Order theme, the uh, the music during the Star Killer base battle, they at least were different scores, different types of themes. This one, yeah, like I said, it just it felt very traditional. And I will say, like, there's a few moments that work. There was the Last Jedi track, you know, the one that the actual title Last Jedi. That it's effective. It, it communicates what it's supposed to do because that's the big climactic bit with Luke Skywalker at the end. Um, and then you know, there's some other stuff like that Canto bite theme that was. I mean, it's their new version of trying to one-up the Moss Icy score again. Again. Okay. To... Look, if you couldn't get Lin-Manuel Miranda to do a good score in uh, Force Awakens, just just <laughs> don't try again. Just don't do it anymore. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so it's just okay. I... This one I do not recommend you go out and listen to immediately because it's just it's, it's just you know just listen to the old tracks they're all the same pretty much, um, and then the last one here which is Actually, three... sorry before we continue I just found this video the other day I put it on uh, the Children of the Tales group page but like it was a uh, 
Someone modified the solo trailer, the one that just came out, and they put the I'm Han solo song from Star Wars Connect. And they made it fit and it works. And it's so kinda bad, but it kinda it's kinda great at the same time. So like at that point where uh he's like, Oh, oh who am I then? And they just custom title is like I'm Han Solo, I'm Han Solo. I was like Fuck off with this. You know, well, the music would have that techno beat, too, that would kind of fit if you did that, so there you go. It works! Like, they edited it so well to the point where it was like, oh, it's... If anything, go check it out. It's it's worth seeing. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, uh, that's an, another Oscar-nominated work to be discussed. <laughs> but uh, the last one here is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And this is one where I say it's my fourth favorite on the list. But it's not even a bad score either. It's just there's a lot of it that repeats the same theme. Because the, the big part about this score is that opening theme, the uh, Bildred Goes to War. And that's the one that replays throughout the entire score. And it's catchy. It's very distinct. It's just that's mostly what the soundtrack has going for it. I don't know. Do you feel the same way, guys? Uh, yeah, to an extent. Um, this is one. Uh, it's one of the scores that, like, this is one of the ones that I haven't really sat down to listen to, like uh, Phantom Thread. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, JC, do you remember much from the score when you saw Three Billboards? I don't. I I kind of remember the way the music sounded in the trailer, and I felt like a lot of that same sort of like small guitar riffs were were just kind of ever present throughout. And yeah, nothing about it really stood out to me because it it seemed like a lot of the more impactful moments also were either silent or had like commercial music behind them yeah no and i noticed that looking at the soundtrack listings that there's a lot of licensed music so it's like yeah the score when it comes in it's good but those aren't the big scenes like the the one i remember the most was um the sheriff willoughby score i forget what it's called exactly but the one when he has his letter that's being read out loud And that score is very emotional, very sad and that stuff. And then there's that opening theme that's really distinct. But otherwise, yeah, it's just, it's solid Carter Burwell stuff. And I think the main reason it got nominated is because of Carter Burwell. Because he's just a legend in the industry. And so, I think if I remember correctly, he would refuse to campaign for Oscars until like two years ago. Because he's been, for some weird thing about promotional campaigns and that stuff, where he just didn't care. Um, but then someone convinced him to campaign for Carol, and he got in on his first try. And then he's like, okay, well, I guess I'll just have to keep doing this. And he's nominated for three billboards. <laughs> um, but yeah, when you think about all the scores he did in the past, you know, Fargo, Miller's Crossing, most of the, you know, most of the Coen Brothers films. And none of those got nominated because he just didn't campaign for them. So <laughs> I guess there's a lot of makeup, I think, for, for most people. But yeah, I mean, it, it's solid. It's just, it's just there, you know. It, it's good, solid, filler music. So 
Yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a whole lot of enthusiasm for this score. To be honest, I, I, I figured I could hear. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just fun. Like maybe if I have like a easy listening soundtrack, I would put that Mildred Goes to War on that. But otherwise, it's just it's good. So, with all that being said for scores, how memorable this is, let's talk about the songs. Woo! Yay! Uh, this ought to be interesting because we had. Quite a unique lineup of song nominees this year. You know, from the big showy musical numbers to pretty much big showy musical numbers, but pop and R and B. Yeah, <laughs> felt like we had a lot of big scores. Like the 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 quietest one was the one from "Call Me by Your Name," I think. But oh, the, going... yeah, the the Suvian Stevens one. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's start with the first one here, which is Mud, uh, "Mighty River" from Mudbound, and the song we'll play here. You know, just for the editing part. Uh, so yeah, this one was done by Mary J. Blige. Life is a teacher, time is a healer, and I'm a believer, like a river wild. Eagle's a killer, greed is a monster, but love is stronger, stronger than them all. And, you know, it's, it's pretty solid. It sounds like a lot of these kind of big, showy ballads that we usually get for these Oscar nominees, but Mary J. Blige is a great singer, I think. And Yeah, this, like, she's, like, she's absolutely fantastic, and she does pour a lot of, like, she pours a lot of into emotion, uh, she pours a lot of emotion into it, just like she does her character in the movie. So it's, almost, <laughs> it, 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 it's enjoyable in the sense that it's, like, it's, it's emotional. Like, the emotions that you're supposed to get out of it, it works. Yeah, and I think my only complaint with that song is it's way too long. Like, five minutes seems like way too much for these nominees. But it was still solid, even with it being super long. <laughs> uh, JC, what, uh, did you get a chance to hear this one? I did not, unfortunately. Okay, okay. I will agree, five minutes, though, is probably too long for a song. <laughs> yeah, and I think, it, is it the one that plays over the closing credits, or? Um, 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 shit. I can't even... After... <laughs> I can't remember. My bad. Okay. All right. But we are very prepared for this, people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the most prepared. Yeah, number one podcast on one of us.net. But anyway, uh, yeah. It's, it's Maybe, a good song. Just put like an aside after just saying like, okay, no, it was during this. Okay. I'll, I'll, after, the t- after the beep here, you will hear who what is correct. Beep. Yes, it's the end credit song. Okay. <laughs> um... All right, so there we go. Um, then next up on the list is The Mysteries of Love by Sufjan Stevens. Oh, to see without my eyes The first time that you kiss me Boundless by the time I cried I built your walls around me White noise, what an awful uh, Oh yeah, and sorry, by the way, for Mighty River, it was also Raphael Sadiq who uh, helped write Tony, Tony, Tony. Yeah, there we go. So then, yeah, so uh, Mysteries of Love is only Sufjan Stevens. I, I can't believe that's how you pronounce his name, Sufjan. That just... I know. <laughs> it took me years before I figured out that it was actually pronounced fucking Sufjan instead of Sufjan. <laughs> Did, didn't know that until right now? <laughs> yeah. So uh, so then, JC, you saw Call Me By Your Name as well, right? I did. Okay. So this is the song that I know for a fact does play at the end of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it, this is interesting because it felt very much like Nami's like the moon song where they're very melancholy. They're very quiet. They're very, you know, very indie alternative uh, style music. 
I can't think, I can't even think of the tune without listening to it on the video itself. I'm just like, yeah, I can't hum it really. Just <laughs> that's Sufjan's whole style is that he sings super soft spoken. <laughs> He's just sighing into the microphone the entire time. <laughs> it feels like yeah. that's the, he makes depressing ass music. So like it's it's that's par for the course. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times I can be into uh, when it's just a dude and a guitar, um, but. I mean, sometimes I like for that to be a little upbeat also. And so, especially in that moment, um, yeah, melancholy is the best way to kind of describe it. And it's like, all right, well, I'm here now. And I'm listening and I'm watching this sad kid. What now? (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing where it's like, I get the song could probably be effective if I saw it in the scene. But on its own, it's just any number of, you know soft indie you know romantic ballads or sad songs you know just it, yeah. it'd be one of the songs that play on uh her if walking phoenix like play a melancholy song play another melancholy right. song play sophion stevens yeah. i don't know just <laughs> yeah it was okay it was okay um this next one here you know i've tried to deny it for so long just because it's the obvious pick for this but honestly my favorite song was remember me from coco Nigga, I told you, I told you, motherfucker. Remember <laughs> me. Though I have to say goodbye, remember me. Don't let it make you cry. For even if I'm far away, I hold you in my heart. I sing a secret song to you each night. We are apart. Remember me. You're going to be surprised what my second favorite is, though. But, um, Am I? Yeah. Uh, maybe, probably not, but, <laughs> um, you know, I just gotta say, just by the fact that there's so many variations on this song, like, even, um, I went through Spotify and listened to all four of these versions, and then I found the Spanish version, where a lot of the other actors do their singing for, um, that soundtrack, and it's just a song that adapts so well to different styles of music, and different tones, and different motifs, it's really, really, really good. Recuerdame. I told you this from the get-go when I saw it the first time. <laughs> that yeah. This is the best song. Like, there was no way this was not going to be, like, the best song out of any film. Actually, this is my favorite, yeah, original song out of any film this year. And when I was re-listening to uh, the, la- the, uh, the last version that plays in the movie, the, uh, the reunion version. With uh, oh, yeah, Miguel yeah. and his and his like uh, great grandmother. Remember me, though I have to travel far. Remember me, each time you hear a sad guitar. Know that I'm with you, the only way that I can be. Man, I got emotional as fuck again just listening to it on its own without the context of the movie. But like it, it, it's short. It's like the it's the shortest version, but it's the most powerful version. And God, I was tearing up. One hundred. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it it's one of those movies where as as it started, um, having not seen the movie, but watching it for the first time, the first time that song came up, and then even the second time, I was like, oh, this is gonna be rammed down my throat for like song of the year sort of thing. But then every time. <laughs> It came up. It was it was either sung a little differently, or it was in a different context of the movie. And then in the end, like Shaq talked about, I was like, "That's a, it's such a great moment, and it's done in a really excellent excellent way." Um, yeah, it's it, it and it's really authentic in the way. Um, like I, I'm Hispanic, and and I grew I grew up with a family that listened to a lot of Mexican singers who weren't 
internationally famous. They're not like obviously not like Justin Timberlake or anything like that, but like among Mexican people really love and really love these singers and they only have like a, a few hits that they they live on they make their careers on and everyone knows the words to them and yeah like that was a really authentic part of the movie oh yeah i mean it's just this is one of those ones it's so simple and so like you know it'll just get stuck in your head immediately they have the right way to catch it so it's like yeah everyone should know the words of this song just remember me you know, kind of like that. <laughs> and even um, hearing the Spanish versions, I have to say, I think my favorite versions of the songs, like, because the Virginia one's really good, but Gail Garcia Bernal is a really great singer. Like, who would have thought, right? Uh, yeah. Right. But both his versions, both in English and Spanish, he does really, really good. And I, I, I need to go listen to the Spanish version because I actually haven't listened to it yet. In full. Oh, yeah. No, I just found it today. So, yeah, that was Recuerdame, uh, the way that they pronounce it there. And it, it flows just as organically as the English versions. So, uh, yeah, this is um, the song was written by Robert Lopez and Kirsten Anderson Lopez. You know, he's kind of the golden boy right now for musical theater because he did Book of Mormon. He did Avenue Q. He did Frozen. You could have just stopped at the first two. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, well, I'm just saying, like, you know, that's his thing. He's just been, you know, you know, beat by beat, step by step, ascending, you know, to, like, top songwriters right now, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, he, this is really great, and I would not be surprised to see him win, so. I can't even imagine who would compete against him, because especially this next song here, Stand Up For Something by from Marshall. Um, this song's kind of lame, to be honest. Honestly, uh, what I'll say is that, like, I think uh, Adria Day is a fantastic singer, and she has a beautiful voice on this. That being said, it's kind of like a lesser version of Glory, like the the John Legend comment song that we got on Selma. Yeah. I thought that mm-hmm. was that song was much better than this one, and that one also, Common's verse felt a lot more inspired and passionate Granted, that was probably also due to, like, the recency of, like, the events that were just happening at that point with, like, Ferguson and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think with this one, it just felt like he was just kind of coasting on just, like, he's very passionate about, like, civ- like civil rights films and stuff like that. And But it just here, it felt like he was just kind of not bringing his A game like he was at least on Glory. No, I think the only reason the song got nominated was because of Common. Like, that's the, the people recognize that name, but it's like, oh, yeah, I commented. That's on for Glory. You know, I mean, that's on for Selma. Because uh, mm-hmm. him and uh, Diane Warren, who did the song for this one. And it was, you know, it's just it's just so much like it's, any it, other song. Yeah, it's it's not great. It's like that that typical kind of inspirational song that you just kind of hear. That you would, you would hear on the radio and be like, oh, okay, cool. And then just not really think about. Yeah, it almost reminded me of the song that was up for um, Beyond the Lights a few years back. If you remember that film? Yeah, I remember it. I haven't seen it, but I heard it was like the film itself was really good, at least from what I hear. But yeah, at yeah. least the, that song, it's not really something that people talk about. No, I mean it was an okay song, but it had that same kind of like you know very traditional style music of like R and B, soul, you know, th- you know those kind of ballads like that. So, uh, and then any last thoughts from you, JC? Uh, did you, uh, you did you see Marshall by the way? I, I didn't see this movie, but I, I sort of had the same thought about seeing Common nominated for another song. And my my first thought was this probably isn't going to be as good as Glory, uh, because Glory was was a really amazing song. Uh, and so yeah, it sort of seems to be 
be what you guys think. <laughs> yeah, it's a legacy nomination, it feels like. Um, and then this last one here... I'm just gonna say it. That's your second favorite? Yeah, sorry, Ian. Uh, this is me from The Greatest <laughs> Showman's a fun song. I love it. This is me. Look out, because here I come. And I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. Honestly, I... I, I... I, I haven't seen the movie, but I want to check it out because everybody talks about how great all the music is. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing. It's like the score is actually very, very good. All the songs are really good. They're they're overproduced like crazy, but that's kind of keeping with the tone of the movie, I think. That's but, why I didn't like it so much. <laughs> like, exactly. I hated this song. <laughs> like, you know, it's... It's yeah, it's such an overproduced, super poppy musical record that it was just left a bad taste in my mouth. Like I get why people love it, but it's one of those things. That, like if I see this in the context of the movie, I'd be like, I'm so over this already. <laughs> no, and I I get that. I mean, I I still need to see the movie because I know Ian hated it. Uh, I'm sure most other people hated it. My brother raved about it though, and he to be fair, he's easy to please uh, in that kind of context. But I just got to see it for myself. I can't make up my mind. And that movie is a huge financial hit, out of, you know, against all odds. It's still it, in the top five. <laughs> people like it. People like to watch it. So no, I got to see it for like myself. Three but. whole last months. <laughs> and I, I'm kind of surprised that I was towards my apprehension to, towards it because when I first saw La La Land, I ended up liking La La Land a lot. And I was sold within a few minutes of that first song. I was like, this is really cool. And to me, I think this is really creative. And then the trailers for Greatest Showman came around, and I was like, eh. But everybody tells me it's great, so... Yeah, no, I, I, I get the feeling that it's not as good as La La Land, because La La Land had a lot more inspiration with its art and direction, I think. But, yeah, this at least this song, I... And I get it, it's overproduced, it's poppy, but at the same time, it stands out a lot more than even the song Stand Up for Something from Marshall. You know, it, it felt like it had more of an impact, more of a beat to it. Uh, the other ones just kind of coasted along with very particular beats um and maybe it's not even my favorite for the great showman soundtrack i like some of the more solo work for some of the other actors but <laughs> i guess it's one of those things like i still say coco is gonna win but if i had to think of a second place nominee maybe the greatest showman just because <laughs> yeah like if you had to think of someone else who didn't i mean if coco didn't win who would you pick shaquille um, uh, if I if I had to give it to a song, then I'd probably give it to Mighty River because I thought that was actually great. Still, but okay. otherwise, yeah, it's it's Remember Me's game. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm sure you probably agree too, right, JC? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, uh, yeah, that's the music for this year. Uh, this year, uh, it's a good lineup. I'm thinking on both of score and song, like not the most memorable I've ever seen, but there's always kind of a mixture of that, where, like, you have the one or two spectacular moments and spectacular nominees, and the other ones are, like, good, average, safe, you know, just all depends on the type of songs they're interested in that year. I don't know, but that's that's what it feels like to me. Like, you know, for every year that someone, like, you know, Displa gets nominated, there's all the years where he gets nominated for, like, the blandest scores possible, like, uh, The Queen or, um, uh, freaking, what was that one with Kate Blanchett and Judy Dench? Oh, um, 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 was that, was that No Son of Scandal? Was that it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, no, actually, no, you know what? That wasn't him. That was, um, I want to say it was Philip Glass, actually. Maybe. But, yeah, just where you go, those, like, oh, yeah, that movie, you know, the score is the thing that people least remember from those movies. <laughs> but they're just there. They're safe. They're good. 
you know, kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, going from there then, we got the retrospective. Yay, the best of whatever from the last 10 years. And this week, you know, we've gone through acting, we've gone through um, some technical categories. It's time for the big creative categories. And this week, we're doing screenplay. Woo! Hey. Uh, now, this is a fun category. And it's interesting because original screenplay especially, it's kind of become that category of, this is for the film that was really liked by people, but not enough to be the runaway hit kind of thing where it's like yeah you know we we liked you we just didn't love you kind of thing like that and, mm-hmm. which is weird because they like the people who have won this award before like pulp fiction that was the only award it won at the oscars when it was out that year which is but, fucking crazy to think about like especially in retrospective <laughs> i i still say forrest gump is one of the greatest films to come out ever but pulp fiction you know it's hard when that year 94 you know, three of the films on that the, the list for Best Picture are some of the greatest films that come out of the 90s. You know, uh, Shawshank, Forrest Gump, and Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's really hard to call. But, yeah, no, original screenplay, by far, that's the award it definitely should have won, if anything, because it's just a great freaking script. Um, and then here, with the nominees for Best Original Screenplay, uh, let's see. So, I mean, of the winners, let's see. Uh, who wants to go first on this one, actually? Uh, I'll take the first one. All right, so... From this year to about 2007, what would you say were your f- your favorite three winners for original screenplay? Three winners? Um, honestly, I thought this list was actually a lot smaller than I thought it'd be for winners. But uh, my three, uh, the first one's Birdman. So the Bird- Birdman was a great snappy script that just kept going. It was kind of like a, it was super fast paced, but still just like it, it was just as chaotic as the film, like the film progresses. But it was. It was great. I, I enjoyed it. Um, the other one is uh, Juno, which is still Diablo Cody's best script before she got super self-indulgent with like the the snappy dialogue that like kind of <laughs> fucked up with uh, what was it Jennifer's body? <laughs> that was the one where yeah. it's like, oh, you are overdoing it. <laughs> we watched that for my screenplay class class this week, so I got to you know watch it fresh in my mind. And it's funny because the parts that work the least are those snappy dialogue moments, you know, like the uh, yeah. you know, shut your freaking gob or the uh, that stuff. But the emotional beats are really, really strong in that film, for sure. Yeah, and at least when Juno came out, it still felt very, like, you're looking at it with retrospective, but, like, at least at the time, it felt really fresh and different. And that, at least that's what made it at least a lot more enjoyable for me. And the third one I'll give it to is The Hurt Locker. Because the Hurt Locker is fucking fantastic. (laughs) And, yeah, Mark Bull just killed it with just how relentlessly intense it was for the entirety of it. Like, there's not a moment of it that I was like, man, this is... When is this going to let up? (laughs) And it never does. Yeah, it's funny because that year I was kind of rooting for Inglourious Bastards to win. But looking back at it... The nuances of the Hurt Locker are even stronger than the you know incentricness of Inglorious Bastards. I you know it's just it's it's so good, and especially because they really make a great character out of Jeremy Renner's character throughout the entire story. Definitely it's a great, great fusion of acting and writing. Um, oh, and then yeah, for noble nominees, what would you say are like maybe like three of your favorite like notable? Um, okay, yeah, in terms of notable, uh, straight out of Compton for one, that was yeah. an incredible fucking screenplay that like. They they could have done something. They could have pulled the fucking notorious and just been, just shit the bed, and just kind of go through like the highlights and nothing but that. But the thing is, is that they still gave a lot of just like the way that the characters developed was 
incredibly strong, like surprisingly strong for a film of this type. I think it kind of wavered at the end where it got a bit too kind of like TV movie-ish, especially what happens to Easy e But for mm-hmm. the most part, it's still like fantastically written. Um, the other thing I'll I'll mention is uh, da, 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 I'm just like digging through here. Um, fuck, there's a lot here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Wally, Wally's great. I there's a lot that. It, it could have faltered. Like, this could have flopped hard. Especially with the fact that, like, the film... Having no actual dialogue for, most, for like, a good chunk of it. At least the opening, what? 30, 40 minutes? Yeah, something like that. But no. Th- th- but they still managed to inject so much humanity into it that I kind of fell in love with it. And uh, a third one I'll mention... Um, I think it's, there's a lot here that I'm just, I'm just trying to divide through three. Um... There's a lot of great nominees. Yeah, just throughout all of them. Um, I'll say Boyhood actually, because Boyhood Yay. it was a really, it's very natural. Like if it, like it, it's a movie that when you watch it, it feels like it's almost improvised for the whole thing, but it really isn't. At least a, a couple parts were improvised. At least as far as I know, like the whole dialogue like about Star Wars, like oh, they're, are they going to make a new one? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> Well, but, that was very clearly eighty yard as well, so I'm sure they yeah. had to improvise on the spot. <laughs> but it still is one of those things that, like, it felt it's one of, it, it doesn't feel like a movie; it just feels like life in the best kind of way. Yeah, and the fact that he can write, you know, maintain a story over the course of twelve years without missing a beat, like, it feels completely organic. Like you said, you're not like feeling a script when you watch yeah. it. And uh, actually, one last one I'll mention from that same year: Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler. Yes. I love Birdman, but Nightcrawler should have won that year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Birdman's a little more polished, but Nightcrawler, it's a great character piece for Jake Gyllenhaal's character. Like, you you understand more than you ever want to about this totally psychotic dude. Exactly. <laughs> like, they, like, they don't tell you everything about him, but they tell you just enough to be unnerved. Oh, yeah. Like, it's very, it's a very modern-day taxi driver, almost. You know, in that level of, like, the insanity of the individuals. Yeah, <laughs> and actually, and those... I think my oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, you say your favorite one. Oh, I was just saying my favorite bit, oddly enough, was one of the improvised moments when uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is in front of the mirror in the bathroom, where he he just he freaks out. out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like somehow that worked perfectly because uh, the bit when he uh, slammed it and the glass broke, that was an accident. He cut his hand on that, but it oh, worked shit. so well they just kept it. <laughs> but no, that yeah, that one's the last one I'll mention. But yeah, those, those are all my uh, original screenplay ones. No, those are all solid choices. I totally agree. And, uh, yeah, Birdman, I think that it really does work that even with the camera work and everything else that people talked about it, it's just such great writing on the whole. Like, it feels like there's a very well-constructed narrative to work with. To yeah, work like, with. like when we when you think about, it, like, my favorite, at least piece, like, writing-wise, the fucking Emma Stone's speech where she just tears into fucking Michael Keaton, and you're just like, God damn. <laughs> Well, and fun fact, too, uh, apparently, if for all the improvised and the single-take stuff that was going on there, you know the person who messed up the least on that movie was? Who? Uh, Zach Galifianakis. R- really? <laughs> of all people? Wow. Yeah, no, apparently, like, you know, because he, he comes from a stand-up background, so he, I, I'm sure he's used to being a lot of, doing a lot of staged and long takes like that. The person who messed up the most? Emma Stone. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say Edward Norton, because I was like, for everything you hear about him and how, like, how relentless he is about perfection and being controlling. Yeah, that's surprising. 
<laughs> oh yeah, no. I mean, apparently Emma Stone is like you know she was still developing and new and that stuff, but she that scene is her standout scene for sure. Like that is yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the beginning of her. It's like oh, she's for real. Yeah, she she's legitimately a good actress, not just that girl from Zombie Land. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um. So then, JC, uh, let's go with you. Who are your top three winners if you had to pick from the last ten years? Uh, well, I love Birdman also, so I guess I'll talk a little bit more about uh, two others. Um, I guess in no particular order. Uh, Jago Unchained. Uh, I love Quentin Tarantino movies. I love the way he writes movies. And, and with Django Unchained, um, probably about... I, I can't remember at what point in the movie this is, but the, the, the point where they're in that bar and he... Uh, he meets up with that sheriff who who he ends up killing. Oh right, the, like near the beginning, right? Yeah, it, it it a little bit a little bit more in the beginning, almost towards the half. But it was it was kind of at that point where I kind of kept watching, where I began to say to myself, "I'm like, I think this might be my favorite Tarantino. This movie's fantastic." Wow. And it kept going and it kept going, and then and then unfortunately it went on a little bit too long, and that's sort of where it came back down to reality a little bit. But I, I think the first three quarters of this movie at the very least, are, are written superbly. And, it, and and it it might not overall be my favorite Tarantino, but I think for the first three quarters of that movie, it's it's it might be my favorite script of his. Yeah, no, and I agree. Like, that's my only complaint with the film is that that last fourth is a little too long, where it's like, the movie kind of ends with a big shootout sequence, and then it just goes on for another 20 minutes. <laughs> but uh... for, for me for me, it's weird. I was like, it, it's it, it, I, there are very few movies where you can pinpoint a single moment where it kind of goes wrong for me, and it... it it literally is the moment where Leo kind of shatters the glass and cuts his hand open. From that point on, I was like, "Ah, you were my favorite Tarantino." Now it's kind of now it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, to be fair, that that Leo DiCaprio scene is pretty strong. Like just that oh, yeah. the fact that he acted that whole scene while bleeding, you know, and just smearing the blood on poor Kerry Washington's face the entire time, just like this poor woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, then uh, what else? Uh, what, what was some of the other uh, picks? Um, I I really love Midnight in Paris. Uh, I think yes. it's it's a really really clever story, clever storytelling. I think the way he brought those characters to life. Um, and granted, it's more in the performances than maybe it is on the page. But um, I, I mean, Ernest, Ernest Hemingway uh, in, in that movie I thought was really great, and I loved every scene he was in. Oh yeah, uh, and, Corey Stoll. Yeah, Corey Stoll. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just thought this was a, a really great story. I thought to me it was a sort of a unique story. Um, yeah, I could tell everybody was really into, really must have been into what they were reading uh, to to get the performances they were getting. I, I really enjoyed Midnight in Paris. I agree, and you know, and that's the thing where it's like it's not as strange or complex as some of his other works, but I think that's why it works so well is that it is much more accessible and audience friendly in comparison. Um, so then, uh, are those your three? Then uh, Birdman, Midnight in Paris, and Django. Uh, yeah. Okay. And then so, some other ones that that I like that were nominated. Um, uh, I mean, talking about Tarantino, like, Glorious Bastards. Uh, I think aside from Pulp Fiction, because Pulp Fiction is so great, I sort of think that's sort of everyone's default favorite. Um, even though Pulp Fiction might be my favorite, I do find that I rewatch Glorious Bastards the most. Um, I I just think it it that opening scene sucks you in so well and it whenever i started i'm just like all right i guess i'm just gonna sit here for two and a half hours and finish this <laughs> um, <laughs> um yeah no. i really love inglorious bastards yeah that and the uh the whole bar sequence uh with michael fassbender i think those okay, two I'm a, the... 
pause, I'm gonna be real. I hate that scene. I hate it really? so much. It's legitimately one of the like one of my least favorite Tarantino scenes because oh. people were like, "Oh, it's so intense." I didn't feel a single piece of tension until like the last two three minutes. But like the whole time, I was just they were just playing the bar game, and I was just it was meandering to the point of just pure frustration. But like, see, that's what I love about it. It's so organic. It's so like it's so matter of fact that once the actual tension comes in, because it's it's never not building. That whole like every little clue is being laid out through those mundane sequences. Like I get that, but it was just frustratingly boring to me. Like Aww. like I didn't care what they were like. I'm just like just get on with the movie. Like, but by that same effect, you mentioned the opening scene, and that I was like that was tense from the get go. That that. Like, there were more moments like that. I was like, okay, I would love this movie a lot more if there were more like this, but there really isn't. And, like, with with Inglorious Bastards as a whole, it's all the, those ones that, like, I get that people love it. It's, a lot of it is their favorite, but it's one of my least favorites because, mainly because of, like, yeah, stuff like, when they, when they do one thing good with, like, especially the scenes with the Bastards and the opening scene and anything with Christoph Waltz, They'll do, like, two, three more things that just bore the hell out of me, like anything involving Shoshana post-opening scene. I hate Shoshana. Like, she's one of, the, one of my least favorite protagonists in any movie I've seen in the past decade because she's so just frustratingly boring. Hmm. You have seen Gerard Butler movies, right? Like, I have, <laughs> this comparing to Gerard Butler... It's on that level of just like, I don't care about you. I should because of what just happened to you in the opening scene, but I don't. <laughs> God, I'm oh, sorry. I had to get that off my chest because that's all those movies. It just pisses me off when I think about it because it could have been so much more to me, but it hey, wasn't. Everyone has their thing. I get it. So. Yeah. <laughs> but then I, I... And I, yeah. And, and I get that the the idea for Tarantino's original idea for it was to be like a longer sort of mini series, And so there probably could have been more depth to to some of the things and so i i can kind of see that okay yeah nothing nothing against you guys it's just like that's my own personal take i respect y'all still one of my favorite bits in that movie with shoshana is the uh, restaurant sequence where so much attention is paid to their desserts you know just like attend de la creme (laughs) that's what i'm talking about that's what the shit (laughs) i love that though i love i thought that was one of my favorite parts just it's so like subversively tense, but anyways, I'm, I'm getting getting beyond the point. <laughs> uh, JC, uh, what else did you uh, think for notable nominees? Uh, I really love Ex Machina. Um, okay, I, oh, I find yes. that I rewatch that a lot. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, no, it's incredible. Yeah, um, yeah, that's the and that's sort of a, a good exercise in, in deliberation of, of pace and things like that. Like it's, it's, it's building towards that, that really great ending. Um, yeah, I just think it's, 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 it's dependent almost solely on, on words and the performances because there's not a whole lot to the scenery, obviously. And so to do that on, on the page, I think is, is, is really incredible. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <clears> I, <throat> I think my only fault with that movie is that it was a little predictable in the way that it ended. Where I'm just like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a you know AI movie. It kind of ends like all AI movies do. But a lot of those sequences, especially during the beginning, and the middle with um, Donald Gleason and Alicia Vikander, they're really, really strong. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another one I really like is it's a movie I have a, a strange relationship with because uh, I like Coen Brothers movies, 
Um, this was the first one where I saw it in theaters, didn't really like it, and then for whatever reason I revisited. Uh, actually, I revisited because it was nominated that year, and uh, my buddy always throws a, an Oscar party where he, like, all day he, sp- he loads up the, the Best Picture nominees and go to his house and you just watch them. And so I rewatched The nice. Serious Man for the second time, and I was like, this movie's fantastic. Why did I hate this? I still it's have not so seen that movie fun- yet. Yeah, it's so funny, and um, especially with the amazing year of uh, Mike, Michael, right, Stuhlbarg? Yeah, 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 Michael Stuhlbarg, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the amazing year that he's had this year, if you go back and rewatch that, it's like this gem has been here with us the entire time, and, and this is the really the only movie where he's the lead. Um, well, and that was his big breakout role, too, so. Yeah, and and so, yeah, that movie, it's, it's fantastic, and I don't can't even remember why I didn't really like it the first time, but now when I go back and I think about it, it's one of my favorite Coen's, and I rewatch it pretty frequently. Okay, I need to rewatch that one then because I I do also like a lot of Coen Brother movies. Like even um Inside Lewin Davis, I think was unfairly forgotten the year it came out. Uh, but yeah, no, I definitely need to see this one then. It sounds really good. Uh, and then uh, any other nominees or? Um, that's about it. I mean, there's yeah, there's a lot of a lot of things I really like in here. Nothing. Uh, I like Zero Dark Thirty. Uh. Like La La Land. Ooh, Hell or High Water kind of stands out as one of those. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that it, one, too. <laughs> when it was nominated, didn't really have a chance to win, but I'm like, fuck, I'm glad it's nominated, because that's awesome. Yeah, it's a good lean script. Like, it doesn't waste any time, it gets straight to the point, and it has yeah, profound but not overly flowery dialogue, too, which I really like about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's some good picks. Uh, well, I'm actually glad that there's not a whole lot of overlap with our picks, because... Uh, my favorite Best Original Screenplay um, from this, this decade was Spike Jonze's screenplay for Her. I I just thought that was a great, great, you know... I do, I do like that movie. Oh, yeah. No, I think it's just a really profound script where it it is very talky, it's very flowery, it's very, you know, wordy and that kind of stuff, but it's just so involving. And they do a really great job defining the relationships between Joaquin Phoenix, Scarlett Johansson, and all the other tertiary characters around them. And there's just some great, great emotional beats throughout that whole movie. Like, even um, one scene that always gets to me is that bit when their relationship starting to crumble apart, and he's at the subway entrance, and they're having that talk about how she's kind of being, I guess, quote-unquote, unfaithful with him with all those other AIs that she's kind of getting involved with. And it's just, yeah. it's so simple, it's so poignant, and yet so profound at the same time. I just... I just really, really dug that whole movie. And, I mean, part of it is with the strength of how good Joaquin Phoenix is in that movie. And, and interacting with Scarlett Johansson, which, from what I remember, he wasn't actually acting against her, right? Because they had Adderin after the fact? I can't remember. Yeah. I, I don't remember if it was actually recorded live, because I remember the original actress was Samantha Morton, who was supposed to be um, the voice. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think I remember reading something about that now. Yeah, yeah. So I don't remember if he was actually bouncing off her line reading to him or not. But either way, that's equally impressive. They can write good dialogue without even the actors needing to directly contact each other in certain scenes. It's yeah. really, really good. Um, so then my second favorite, I just really like kind of more poignant, quiet scripts like that. Uh, Manchester by the Sea. I really, really dug that. And that was always my top pick that year. Because what that script does for just nuanced, careful, controlled emotions... Pretty much, it's one of the most 
interesting looks at how people process grief that I've ever seen. It's just really, really effective. And I just, I like the subtleties of it. It feels like, you know, kind of the same way you were talking about Boyhood Shack. It just feels like watching people talk to each other, at least to me. I just thought it really worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay, then, I, already, like, I already said my feelings, but I, I like completely understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Because, like, yeah. I, was, I, wasn't a, I wasn't a big fan of the film, but, like, I do see where you're coming from in the sense of, like, yeah, about how people process loss. Yeah, yeah, and that's the that's what really just struck me. Um, and then I've had to pick a third. It's really hard between a couple of the other ones you guys mentioned, but I think Midnight in Paris is also my third pick for winners. I just, I just think it's a really fun script. And you know, other Woody Allen fans, like I said, they're just purists. Like, oh well, it's not as deep as any Hall or Crimes and Misdemeanors and that kind of stuff. It's like it doesn't have to be. It's just it, it's just fun to listen to. It's just fun to hear these people talk to each other. You know, and it's just it's just such a simple but unique concept of the whole time travel gimmick they do throughout it. So really yeah. like that a lot. Um and then I've had to pick notable nominees. Uh for one of the biggest ones I really liked a lot was Margin Call by JC Chandor. And that's one of those ones again, I, I really like these very wordy dialogue driven films, but that one it, they found a way to take really complicated, dense material and make it almost theater like, very stagey. And it really worked a lot because he had just such great actors reading them as well. Uh, did any of you guys see that movie? I did not. Oh, I did not either, unfortunately. Really, really good. Very good um, ensemble piece work throughout. Uh, and then uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. I just love that movie so much. And it's just a great... I think it's one of Wes Anderson's best scripts that he's ever done. Just very, very quirky and energetic. And then, uh, going off of ones you guys haven't said yet, which you've said all the ones I was going to pick before. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> no, it happens, it happens. Um, you know, Inception is a good idea. I don't think it's the best script I've seen for these nominees, because they happen to explain everything to you over and over again throughout the movie. But it's still solid work throughout it. Oh, you know what? Um, last one I'll just say for like a notable nominee I really liked. And, again, this will seem very offbeat, but I really love Lars and the Real Girl. I thought that was just a fun, simple, profound little indie film. And it's just a great script. And it's yeah. it's not the most impressive movie, but it is a really good, solid bit of writing. But sorry, go ahead, JC. I was going to say, I found that I, I want to revisit that because I, I remember really enjoying it. But uh, yeah, I've only seen it the one time. Yeah, no, same here. I only watched it once, but I remember just liking it a lot. Even I liked it a lot for the reasons people didn't, that it was really, really a very Frank Capra-esque level of sweet and sometimes I just mm-hmm. like very, you know, sugary, sweet stuff when it's done well. So, Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. And plus, where else are you going to see a story about a dude falling in love with a real doll, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's very different. Um, so then, adapted screenplays. Uh, JC, let's have you start this time. So if you had to pick your f- top three winners for adapted screenplay, what would you pick? Oh, well, I mean, it's it's, it's easy for me. Uh, in, the, in the past ten years, it's... it's I'm... I'm always going to harbor resentment towards uh, King's Speech for taking uh, the Oscar away from the Social Network, but uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I love Aaron Sorkin. King's Speech, dude. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love Aaron Sorkin, and I, I love the Social Network. And, and th- this movie was just kind of perfect for me because it's a combination of Aaron Sorkin being my favorite writer, David Fincher being my favorite director, uh, and so this movie could could do nothing but work for me. And uh, yeah, I, I love the writing in it. Too. I thought it was it was it was working, um, if not at his best, very close to it. Uh, so yeah, I absolutely love that one. Yeah, I would argue definitely his best. Yeah, I think because uh, I would have to think like, what else would you say would be contender a contender for his best screenplays he's ever done? 
Well, for for movies, yeah, I I I love him for his his writing. Like I. I deeply appreciate and I really love and, and I always kind of harbor resentment towards 30 Rock for killing uh, Studio Sunset on the um, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Like, because those came out those, at the same time? They, they did. Okay. Uh, and I think okay. the, the reason why NBC, and they're both on the same network, and so the reason why NBC killed Studio 60 is because those episodes were so expensive to produce and those episodes were hour long and 30 Rock was a half hour and those, it was a lot cheaper to make. Yeah. Um, but those 14 episodes of Studio 60 is, is I think, is some of Aaron Sorkin's best. And I'm not a big crier in, in movies, uh, but the, the last couple episodes of Studio 60 just bring me to tears. Wow. Um, I, I just think Aaron Sorkin's great. Uh, so, yeah, easily uh, Sorkin is, is uh, his social network is my favorite adapted of the last 10 years. Um, when I think of Studio 60, I think of, um, there was a joke on Family Guy about Sports Night, I think, was that, that was the one he wrote, right? Yeah. Um, there was that, that joke. That was my introduction to him, yeah. Yeah, I think there was the joke there, they're like, I finally get Sports Night. It's a show that's way too smart to be funny, or something like that, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, I mean, it's kind of true sometimes, where, like, it's so smart, you forget, it's like, wow, these are some really, really funny lines beneath all this dense, literate dialogue. <laughs> and it's, yeah. I, I do agree, I think Sorkin's really just a master at that type of writing, so... Yeah, uh, and uh, I really I I like the Big Short. Yes, um, it's it's in, in a comparison to Sorkin, I, I felt like it 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 sort of felt like a Sorkin script to me. I think in in the way the, the dialogue was was delivered, um, Sorkin doesn't really do a lot of those like surreal kind of cutscenes from the the way the celebrities were, but everything else sort of sort of felt like that to me. And yeah, I thought it's such it was a really clever. weird movie. <laughs> I like, love it for a movie about like the financial crisis it's the weirdest kind of movie that it could be because yeah. of the way just, especially in the editing how it's just just so bizarre like i don't really know how to describe it it's just like just really just jagged cuts like almost like mtv kind of editing well, you know it's funny uh, you know who the editor is who uh the guy who does tree of life Mm. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's very Terrence Malick in its editing, where it just cuts randomly to stuff because it's a Terrence Malick editor. <laughs> it makes sense now. <laughs> that being said, also, it's a super inside baseball. Oh, yeah. like have the like they say they throw so many terms that like I couldn't understand, and even they, even though they had like Margot Robbie explain it in a bathtub in the most layman term she could. I still didn't understand a goddamn thing. Yeah, that's like, that's kind of really why good. I love it. Yeah, that's kind of why I love it because it, it, I, for a movie I love so much, I really only understand about two thirds of it, maybe. <laughs> well, I think they lay out just enough for you to get the gist of whatever they're talking about. Where it's like they explain what a tranche is, they explain what a CDO is, they explain what mm-hmm. you know um, the hot hands fallacy fallacy is. Yeah. But it, it, it and, is something that makes you want to do homework afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and if listeners want to go back and listen to the Highly Suspect review of it, Sarah tells an amazing story of, uh, and I sat next to her when we saw it, we sat next to this lady who he was either pretending that she understood everything, because like every, every complicated explanation or every complicated sentence, she would be like, mm-hmm, that's right. <laughs> like, like, she, like she was the only one who understood it, what was being talked about. They're like those people in the horror movie, just like, you go, oh yeah, don't go in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then I think for a third, um, kind of going back to the Coens, uh, I think No Country for Old Men is sort of something that's kind of right up my alley. Um, 
not too wild about the the ending or the, the abrupt ending, but I think everything else throughout. Uh, I, I think, think it's really cleverly. I'm written. on that camp that yeah. loves the ending. I no, I fucking I fucking hate that ending, man. <laughs> but that ending is exactly the point of the story. I don't know. That's just, that's just me. Like, like I will be fair. <laughs> I did read the book before I watched the movie, but I still think there's only one bit that changes how the context of the ending goes, and they cut like it was a seat that scene in the pool with um that woman. And they changed it just differently enough that it changes the context of the ending from the book. But on the whole, it's actually pretty straightforward an adaptation, you know, compare, you know, from book to, pay, uh, to screen. Yeah. Oh, okay. I I get it that like yeah, it's ending the book, but that's too. It's person on a personal level. I feel like it's one of those things where you gotta kind of change the ending because like. <sighs> but at the same I, time, I, I know I know I, I, I know it worked yeah, in the context of the book. But like as a film, if it's so unsatisfying and it leaves a bad taste in your mouth, it's like, fuck. Like, it feels like I just wasted my time. But I think that's the point, <laughs> is that it is unsatisfying. The fact that Javier Bardem gets away. You know, sorry for the spoiler for a 10-year-old movie. I mean, but... But, I mean, no, I mean, that like, that's unsatisfying in the sense that, like, it makes sense. It's unsatisfying, but still satisfying. But, I mean, the, the actual, actual ending is unsatisfying on a different level. I don't know. I'll just say this. If you saw Josh Brolin getting shot, would it have had any different effect? Because all they did was just cut out that minute of footage where he gets shot by the gangsters. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That, that's just me. That's always my argument. It's like, what would adding that scene where he gets shot up by the guys change about the ending? That's true. I don't, I don't but, know. I, yeah. But I don't begrudge anyone. I, I get A lot of people were not crazy about that ending, so I will not begrudge anyone if they said they had a problem with it. But then, JC, uh, any other notable nominees that you had? Uh, so my notables, uh, Moneyball is not going to be surprised to anyone when I talked about how much I love Aaron Sorkin. It's a great script. Um, but I, I think for, for even a baseball movie, I think it, it and, and sort of in the same way the big short, it, it explains, it delves into some really complicated, um, concepts in, in, in the way they use numbers to sort of, sort of rewrite the way baseball is, is talked about and thought about. Uh, so that was a really clever way. And I think the way they did that, uh, was amazing. Um, I like, uh, I was looking at the list here. <clears throat> um, I like the Silver Linings Playbook. I, I have a lot of fun with that movie. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, it, it doesn't seem to be a lot of people's favorites, but, uh, I, I dug it a lot every time, every, every time I saw it and rewatched it. Um, I, I feel like all three of us, there's no way we can't all dislike or, or the, we feel differently about Whiplash. Whiplash is, is just amazing. Whiplash is masterful, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, looking at it, how did he not win that year? Well, it's because it was up against 12 <laughs> Years a Slave, right? Oh, no, 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 actually. No, not... dude, he lost the, the imitation game. That's yeah. right, that's right. Um, it's it's competition of the American Sniper Inherent Vice Theory. Man, how did Whiplash not win? I think it's that yeah, first-time the... screenwriter thing that you were saying. You know, It's like people yeah. weren't willing to give it. But then again, what else did Graham Moore do before Imitation Game? I can't think of anything. Yeah, no, I'm looking. I can't see anything. Yeah. No. So, okay. I don't know why then. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anything else? Uh, no, those are my notables. <laughs> All righty. That sounds good. Uh, then check. What are your Alrighty. favorites? Uh, no Country for All Men, right? Greatest script ever. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> You know, I'm I'm looking at these like it, actually I might put it in my actually no no, no I won't. Um, in my three, the, the uh, JC already mentioned the first one, the Social Network, and that's maybe the only one out of these that I actually read the book before I saw the movie. Oh, did you? Because really? I love 
yeah, I love the accidental billionaires. That like I when I I randomly picked that up uh at my library one day and I was just so sunk into it. And I remember at the same time I heard about the Facebook movie, I'm like, Oh, that sounds stupid. I thought it was gonna be like the emoji movie kind of thing. <laughs> but then I heard they were adapting the accidental billionaires, I'm like, Oh, okay, let's see how they do this. And fucking Eris Orkin knocked it out the fucking park, man. <laughs> like, I don't think we could say enough of how much he just killed it with that script. Um, so I gotta ask you second, then, um, from adaption from the book to the script, how much did Eris Orkin change of the story? A lot of it is actually, it's actually pretty faithful to it, oh. for the most part. At least, if anything, the stuff he changed is mostly, like, dialogue-based, because he makes, he he's very particular about his dialogue style. It's a lot more fast-paced but it's still really snappy, at least the book was. And he still kept true to that. Okay. Um, the second thing I'll name was uh, Moonlight. Because right. you know how much I fucking adore that movie. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I still need to go look at... I still want to go look at the original play, the, the In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. But this is another one of those movies where, again, it feels natural. Like, it feels like we're just seeing glimpses into just one dude's life that just happens to happen have all these events just at the same time like it feels like a window of a world that like we we can't relate to but at the same time we can and it's such a beautiful story that like i was i was a mess by the end of the movie <laughs> well and then uh if i remember it's an unproduced screenplay technically for the uh, script right like the original version i believe i think so if it is yeah, I think it might be actually. Yeah, but, uh, man, I'm sure it's probably I, I, I out there see, now. So yeah, I I need to see someone do this in a play. But um, and the third one I'll mention is uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Yay! Because that was <laughs> that's such a fun movie and just the, like I don't really have much words to say. Just like I'm just in love with the whole thing. <laughs> I really enjoy that movie too, and I feel like a lot of people crap on it this this many years after it it had all that Oscar glory. And I'm they're like, wrong. I still like it. It's yeah. it's really clever. I, it's yeah. deserving of all of it, honestly. Like I can't really yeah. think. Like I get the Dark Knight wasn't nominated for everything or like <laughs> much of it all, but like it's still an incredible movie. Yeah, yeah. You know that's the thing. Like the more I think about Slumdog Millionaire, I can't think of anything I didn't like about that movie either. Like it's edited well, it's shot well, it's acted well, it's directed well. Like what nitpicking the only thing i think of it's like yeah it's weird that he shifts from the indian accent to a british accent when they go to uh Dev patel but again yeah. that's so minor you know mm -hmm. but uh in terms of nominations there's a lot here <laughs> like I'm, I'm gonna try and i'm gonna try and keep it to five sure but i i don't make i don't make any promises <laughs> um 127 hours great also, the thing is, 2010, 2010 is such a stacked year, especially for adapted screenplay, because I'm like, all of these in here, I would I would go for it. <laughs> um, well, you know, yeah, also, um, on that note, Simon Bufoy, the guy who helps write a lot of those screenplays with Danny Boyle, like, mm -hmm. if you see his name on a script, it's almost guaranteed to be a great script. Like, just look yeah. back at his filmography. He does great work, so. <laughs> and plus, yeah, no, 127 hours. For a movie that's a, is just a guy in one place for, like, 90% of it, it feels so dynamic and fresh mm -hmm. that, like, it's it's astounding to think about. Um, District 9, which, again, another yeah, another incredible fucking script. Neil Blomkamp still maybe the one good thing he's done. Yeah. <laughs> at least directorially, which is a shame. But, uh, no, District 9 was such a sucker punch to me in the sense that, like, it... 
there was so much humanity into it for what's ostensibly a non-human story, but there was so yeah there was so much more into it that just gave it so much more weight to it that just added to like how much I loved it. Yeah, uh, did um, you ever see the short film? that was based on? I did not. Oh, I actually saw it before the movie came out, and it's a great... Like, it's so different than what the final product ended up being, but it has that same, like, that same aesthetic effect that works so well in District 9 with the cutaway interviews and the alien, like, political discussion. It's really worth yeah. your time if you can check it out, so... Oh, definitely, man. Um, the, that's, yeah, that's two. Three, I'll say, uh, what was it? Uh, the Martian, which you got it. Sure. That was, a, that was, a, actually... A really great script, uh, uh, scientifically accurate, surprisingly, <laughs> at least for the most part. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think I think I remember the book. They crowdsourced it to actual scientists or people who knew about the science behind it. Where it's like, yeah, we post up new chapters every week, and then we'd consult with people, just like, okay, if we wrote ourselves in this situation, what's the logical way to write out of it? You know, mm-hmm. and and also surprisingly really funny. Like, oh, like yeah. I thought this was just going to be kind of almost like 127 hours, but it was really, really fucking funny. Um, especially Matt Damon's character. Not best comedy funny, but... <laughs> not No, not best comedy funny, <laughs> but a lot of jokes. I'm like, oh, that caught me off guard. <laughs> um, third one I mentioned is Captain Phillips. Yes! Captain Phillips is... That yeah. was another That's one of those one. movies where it's just relentlessly intense from the moment the pirates board that ship. And... While it's more the performances that give it, that give it like that extra bit of weight, I think on still on a writing level, it still it feels like an action movie, even though it's not really an action movie. Yeah, and, no, I totally uh, agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that three. Um, that fourth was... one, I'll say. Uh, was that three? I think that was four. Was it? That was three. So you're oh, on four three. now. You're right. You're right. Four now. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> which... yep. I love that one. Even though that movie, the screenplay is mostly just curse words, it's still so good and so funny and still manages to make this complete reprehensible piece of human garbage known as Jordan Belfort seem compelling and likable is a fucking miraculous feat. I would say and... he's still pre-reprehensible even then, but... Oh no, he's still reprehensible, don't get me wrong, he's still all of those things, but it's one of those things that like... Uh, you know what? I still like to hang out with this guy. I want to see how like the rich guys live. It's like it could have been entourage of finance, but it thankfully wasn't. True. true. <laughs> and the last thing is, um, uh, I'll say, uh, uh, da, 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 Frost Nixon. Yeah, Frost oh, Nixon okay. is great. 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 Yeah. See, it's only the one time, but yeah, it's great. And just yeah, just, just the back and forth between Frost and Nixon is just like. Oh, like I feel like I'm in the hot seat, <laughs> just sitting there with them. It just, it's it's such a great script. But yeah, those those I kept it to five. I kept it to five. I'll do no more because I don't want to take the, anything from the rest of y'all. Well, the good thing is there's a lot of good notable nominees that you know even just going out to five, there's still plenty more to pick from. But uh, also, I'll say this too: um, Peter Morgan, who writes Frost Nixon, nine times out of ten, his scripts are fantastic too. Like if you see his name, like I think he's writing The Queen now on Netflix. So. He, he oh, does. Yes, yes, he is. I just looked. Yeah, yeah, he does great stuff. You know, throughout. Uh, and actually, um, one of his underrated films I really love too is Rush. If you, uh, I, I was just about to mention oh, yeah. Rush is great. Yeah, that was such a bummer that he didn't get nominated for that. I'm like, look, I get it. It's a little bit more of a crowd pleaser comparison, but it's still a great piece of writing, I think. Um. So then, uh, my picks for adapted screenplay. 
I mean, most of the ones I was going to pick are pretty much already chosen, and that's fine, because they're all really, really great scripts to pick from. Because um, I think my top pick... Ooh, if I had to debate between the two... You know, I'll say Social Network as well. I think that also is, you know, one of the best scripts to come out in the 2000s, uh, 2010s. Just really, really great, sharp. It, and that's the thing, for as talky and as long as this movie is, it's never boring. Like, I'll just say that. It, I was There was never a point when I felt fatigued or not interested in what these people were talking about. It's just so compelling. Um, uh, second pick, I mean, I know, yeah, <laughs> joking aside, No Country for Old Men, I think, is a great script, just throughout the majority <laughs> of it. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. Despite my complaints about the ending, it's still a great script. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially um, the, the gas station scene is always one of the best, like, bits of writing and acting that you can get, you know, in any movie. With uh, Javier Bardem and that one random dude. <laughs> just... Where you're just scared. <laughs> yeah, who would have thought that this one guy, like, this is the most memorable thing he'll ever be in his one scene in No Country for Old Men, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, hi, I'm really split for the last, you know, okay... I kind of have a three-way tie, because we already talked about Snowdown Millionaire, which is great. We already talked yeah. about um, Big Short, which is great. Um, and then the one I'll say for something we haven't talked about is Precious. I Yes. I love the script for Precious. Like, it's it's one of those films that's so hard to watch, but you'll never forget about it when you watch it. It's just... It's no. so... <laughs> yeah, like, I was I was captivated. And I, I know, I heard about how difficult it is beforehand, but I wasn't even prepared for some of the stuff they reveal. We're like, oh, yeah, the stuff with the AIDS, the stuff with her baby, the stuff with her mom, the stuff at the very end when the mom has her big monologue speech. You're just like, God. <laughs> yeah. It's so, it's so intelligent. It's so literate. For, you know, for talking about such, you know, street-level characters, they managed to make them sound like very compelling, very articulate people. And I really, really love that about the script. Uh, and also the fact that they managed to make... Uh, Mar- was it Mariah Carey who was in that one? Or Yes, Mariah Carey, yeah. yeah. They made Mariah Carey look like a good actor. That's what I gotta say. That's a, that's a real... <laughs> made up for glitter! <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of other nominees, uh, one of my favorite scripts is The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Uh, I, I mentioned it before for cinematography, but it's a great piece of writing. Uh, the guy who wrote it was the guy who did The Pianist way back in the day, uh, Ronald Harwood. And oh, okay. it's just, uh, and this was also one too where I read the book that's based on the original autobiography by the guy who's the main character. And the book is short, but it's so profound because obviously he had to make every letter count for you know his last year of his life that he wrote it. Um, yeah. And they actually managed to make it feel more profound by adding all the other stuff, all the cutaways, all the the dialogue inside the head of the main character. It was really, really involving. Um, there Will Be Blood, that's a great, great script with Paul Thomas Anderson. And again, one that uses dialogue sparingly in big chunks of it. Like, it can be very talky at certain points, but then there's that opening 20 minutes where there's nothing at all. Yeah. And uh, that stuff was great. Um, and then from there, we picked a lot of these ones. Uh up in the air, I thought was a solid uh, screenplay as well. Actually, kind of, I kind of preferred that for Jason Reitman movies than Juno, because I think it, it, yeah, it, it's not it's not trying so hard to be hip, personally. But uh, well, per- personally, I'd go with like Thank You for Smoking, but that's oh just yeah, that's one of his very best movies. Uh, and then from there, uh, you know, uh, some I like. I mean, uh, Beast of the Southern Wild is a great script. I really like mm-hmm. that one a lot. Uh, Lincoln. I think Lincoln is a great... Like, that's a movie in that same level of, like, Big Short and those ones of very literate, intelligent, wordy dialogue, but it's never boring. It, you never feel like you're not interested in what's being talked about. 
Uh, and then last one. Oh, it's so hard to choose between these last. Few. You see, dude, there's <laughs> too many options. Yeah, like I think it's kind of a pick between Room and Philomena and uh, Arrival. Those are like those ones are just like. Just Arrival's like, great. Yeah, Arrival. Like, Arrival is one of those rare moments. Um, I took my family to watch it. It was my grandparents, my parents, my brother. I'm not sure if his wife was there or not, but then my sister also. And we watched that movie, and then we all walked out, and we talked about it for, like, 30 minutes. Just just unpacking everything that we watched in that movie. It's just, it was such a great experience with just very intellectual, deep con- concepts being presented. So, so good. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I've had to give an anti-honorable mention. Screw you, Inherit Vice! <laughs> Why is that nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay? Seriously. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. I, again, I, I've told this story before, but that was that one movie where I I, ink, I, I took a date to that movie because it was me, my best friend, <laughs> and this girl who I started to date after that movie. And I'm amazed that she stuck with me after that point because we were all so bored and annoyed with that movie because <laughs> there was a point where i joked like i'm gonna chew off her arm because she was you know we had our arms around each other i'm gonna chew off her arm so i can get out of this theater <laughs> just <laughs> oh, but... Christ. <laughs> but the costumes were nice i will say that to its credit <laughs> yep and watching uh josh bowen eat a whole bunch of pot that was that was something <laughs> yeah so i can't get over just 2010 was so stacked because there was a yeah social network 127 hours, Toy Story 3, True Grit and Winner's Mode. And, like, to me, I'm like, all of those could have won, and I wouldn't have been mad. Yeah, you know, honestly, when I look at the original screenplay nominees and the ad- adapted screenplay, I think there's a lot stronger contenders in the adapted screenplay. Not not every year, but on the whole, I think there's stronger well, contenders. Yeah, just on a general level, yeah. Like, you look at these, they're like, yeah, you know, the, like, there's... You can't really complain with a lot of these. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, even, yeah, some ones you guys picked, like Moneyball, where it's like, you know, even at 2011, that year where you had, like, Descendants, Hugo, Ides of March, you know, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was good, not great, but those top four, like, it's like, yeah, any one of those could have won or been eligible for the top spot, and I wouldn't have complained. The, the only reason I'm, I'm happy about the sentence, I haven't even seen the Descendants, but I just like that Jim Rash has an Oscar, the Dean from Community. <laughs> you know, and to be fair, Descendants, it isn't, it isn't my favorite Alexander Payne movie, but it is very, very well written. You know, a very involving movie. So, uh, and it had one of those, like, those great kind of quiet endings, too, you know, where it's like, there's a big climactic emotional part in the uh, near the end, and then it just, it, it had one of those endings where you just kind of sit there and you just soak it in. You know, really, really effective stuff. And sometimes that's the best part about writing, when you can have people communicate nothing but still say everything, you know? Just a great work. Yeah, for sure. All right. And then, I, like, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it at some point. Yeah. Uh, it makes me sad that downsizing apparently is not that good either, because I, I felt Alexander Payne has not made many bad movies, but I guess he has to slip up somewhere. You know? Everybody does at some point. Yeah. Which, I'll say on that note, too, just one of my all-time favorite adapted screenplays from just in general was Sideways, way back in the day, too. So, But, mm-hmm. unfortunately, that's not within our time frame. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then, on that note, uh, that's all i got to talk about. Any last points you guys want to bring up? Um, No, I'm just excited to see what's going to happen to the Oscars. Like, how far are the Oscars from now? Uh, yeah, so the Oscars are the first March, uh, March 11th. Oh, right, yes. Okay. Yes. 
Yeah. So we got a little time. Uh, again, I don't know if we'll be back <clears> for another episode <throat> next week exactly. I'll still debate about it, and I'll talk to you guys later. But uh, at right. some point, we will do you know a full on like predictions for the major categories for who will win. And then All right, sounds good. Yeah, and then otherwise, um, yeah, for people just. Keep on listening. We'll we'll probably come back with maybe another kind of filler episode with some fun stuff. You know, this this was mostly excuses to get back to talk to you guys because I miss talking to you all. You guys, are fun. <laughs> man, it, dude, yeah, it, like these are fun to do, man. Absolutely, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, if you want to talk to us about whatever is on your mind for winners, anything you want us to talk about for a future episode concerning Oscars, please leave a comment on the bottom of the page. Uh, Shaquille, where can we find you on the interwebs? Okay, y'all can find me on all forms of social media, so like Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, all that stuff at Shaq Excellence. That's S H A K Excellence. And also, fucking Black Panther comes out next week. I'm gonna see it like three times on that <laughs> same opening week. So like after after the first screening, yo, hit me up. We'll talk about how great it is. Hopefully, it's great. If it's trash, we won't acknowledge it for these white people. But no, <laughs> listen, you know you know you know what the deal is. Shala fever. But can you talk to JC about it? He's Latino, so yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe. You know, well, I'll, I'll talk to the black delegation. We'll we'll see about it. <laughs> oh, I feel so excluded. <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen. If the movie's trash, you will never hear me say it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I do have high hopes for Black Panther. I think it, nothing I've seen so far has led me to doubt it'll probably be good. So I just. You know, I'm I'm yeah. willing to go in with an open mind to make sure it is great on its own merits. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and then, JC, where can we find you? Uh, same thing, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I have the same username on all. It's at jcdeleon1. Uh, the Facebook page is facebook.com slash jcdeleon1. Um, yeah, feel free to add me, talk about anything. You'll find that I, I talk about basketball a lot. So if you're really into basketball, and particularly NBA basketball, uh, that's uh, that's kind of my first passion, uh, my first love in, in, in addition to movies. So, yep, that's what I talk about a lot. Nice. Okay, uh, uh, before so... we continue, sorry, before we continue, what's your take on the whole Cavs shit, the whole thing that happened? Uh well, LeBron is my favorite player, and so, yeah, I have lots of takes on this. Uh, I think uh, I think they made a lot of good moves. I think they made the right moves. I think he's energized enough, uh, jazzed, jazzed enough to uh, to make a run, uh, make another run at the finals. I, I still don't I don't think they have quite enough to beat the Warriors, unfortunately, but uh, I, I, it'd be nice to see him make the finals one more time. Okay, all right. <laughs> no, no I, I, I'm not very familiar with the sports balls and everything like that, but uh, how far are we into the season right now for basketball, by the way? Uh, just past the halfway point. Uh, here in the next week or so, there's going to be uh, the NBA All-Star break, and so right, right after that, there's uh, only about 20 or so games before the playoffs hit. Awesome. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm excited. I'll uh, have to uh, ch- hit you up to see what's going on. I'll get my updates from you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah uh you can find me here on oneofus.net i help write the notes for the breakfast pub you'll find me here on this podcast of course and you know i pop on for other podcasts like the unapologetic geek out with nick tice uh we talk about no- notable geek news stuff and interesting properties otherwise you can find me on facebook twitter and i do have an instagram account i don't really use it very often but you can friend me there if you want <laughs> um otherwise yeah just find look up justin zarian you'll see me around there I, I can't imagine there's a lot of Justin Zarians to confuse me with. <laughs> but yeah, uh, once again, thank you guys so much. This is—it's just fun to have you guys here. This is this is the main reason to do this podcast because I like talking to you all. So, 
Uh, absolutely. It's just fun just talking about movies and stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, 